Case file number 7.12, Firewalls, part 1. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief. You gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No. Nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No. How is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. And and the other one. The other one. Ymir. He's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief. What would J. Edgar Hoover do? Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector in the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hey, Ben. Hmm? Why do you think we call network firewalls firewalls? Um, I'm going to assume it's based on shit, like literal firewalls for um, fire prevention, like behind the stove. Or like in a car. That's probably where mm. the... Oh, yeah, yeah where the concept came from but the mm. reason we call network firewalls firewalls as opposed to sent something else like a packet filter or something like that is mm-hmm. because the the movie war games in 1983 used the term firewall and it stuck really oh yeah, yeah. i would i would not i would have thought of it in like oh like firewall keep the bad stuff out like maybe that makes some sense because like in a car i think a car is kind of the best analogy mm-hmm. you have a firewall because you don't want engine fires getting into the cabin and then you have various things that need to traverse that uh in order to make the car run like and like the ignition switch and the steering shaft and Mm -hmm. all that other stuff but (laughs) let us end our first digression (laughs) this is a subject near and dear to my spleen because i've been working on firewalls for a very long time and they've been a a big part of my career one way or the other whether it's using firewall forensic data or actually managing firewalls and doing network design stuff. Mm-hmm. So the first question we ask is, what is a firewall? Nowadays, that is a somewhat more complicated thing to say than it might have been at other points in the past. Because mm-hmm. the function of a firewall is to manage traffic to individual services. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So. I might have said at some point in time that a firewall is a layer four device, a transport layer device, because it deals with the network part of the stack and the transport part of the stack. Mm -hmm. The thing is, that's not totally true anymore. And more than that, there are other devices that are basically that can perform those functions, but aren't firewalls. So what used to be a pretty strong set of lines are now fuzzier and fuzzier. Mm -hmm, I won't talk about the various things, what that means. But we're going to talk about the individual, the progression of the technology and what we think of now as firewalls and what they do. Um, The thing we think about when we're talking about firewalls, we're almost always talking about blocking traffic Mm -hmm. and how sophisticated that can get. 
but it's very important that it operates at the transport layer and above. And uh, over the years, we've had a, a handful of things that we call firewalls. Mm -hmm. And some of them operate very differently. Um, the basic ones that we usually talk about are bastion host, proxy, stateful, stateless, and next generation firewalls. Okay. Mm -hmm. Next generation firewalls, and again, we'll talk more about that when we get towards the end of this, are basically stateful firewalls with a lot more sophistication on them and, and, and significantly more other functions. They aren't distinctly different from stateful fire from other stateful firewalls. They're just more sophisticated. Right, right. So in the beginning, in 1988, Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC, they were the giant slayers. They were the ones, because it's been long enough, the deck has been kind of no longer a factor. They were the ones that started building computers instead of the size of rooms for you know big processing stuff down to the size of like mini fridges and fridges. Mm -hmm. When we talk about microcomputers that we have as PCs, that's because they are the micro size to computers, which are IBM mainframes. Right, yeah. And in the middle there was the mini computer, and DEC started the mini computer computer fight. Hmm. This is one of those pieces where they were a very important part of some foundational technology in the internet. In the internet, and this is and this is one of those times that they were. So in '88, they created the first stateless firewall. Okay. And what stateless firewall is? Is it, say, is it allow packets through it in one direction? It's only looking at port and protocol mm -hmm. and address. And so you have to add on the other interface, the return interface, a flipped rule to allow the return traffic. Right, yeah. This allows for a lot of packet shenanigans, and it is tricky to configure because you need to make sure that you're allowing things in both directions correctly. Hmm. But the thing is, computationally, every packet is just goes through this list of rules. You don't have to remember what already happened. Right, yeah. Which is the major difference between a stateless firewall and a stateful firewall. And Bell yeah. Labs came up with a stateful firewall just a year later. Makes sense. Like, to, in my mind... Mm -hmm. Like a stateless firewall is kind of like on the same vein as like UDP, where it just yes. goes through, forgets what what the hell just happened, it comes back and forgets what the hell just happened again. Yeah. In fact, we use the same terms to differentiate TCP from UDP. Mm -hmm. TCP is a, is a stateful, a you know, reliable connection protocol, and UDP is stateless. Yep. Now the thing is, some UDP traffic, like syslog, doesn't require return packet, but things like DNS do. Mm -hmm. And I know we're we're getting in a habit. I think we're we're on a bit mm -hmm. of a streak of calling back to previous episodes. But I'll mention that that in the DNS Dan episode, the second DNS episode, where they talked about the bug that broke the internet, mm -hmm. there was a problem with the randomness in the protocol plus the randomness in the port was was supposed to be enough, and the and the source port was supposed to be enough to create enough randomness so that uh packets couldn't be spoofed. Right. But many DNS servers weren't randomizing that source port. They had hard set it to 53. Mm. 
So it's relatively common to see DNS traffic that had both source and destination port of 53. Ah, gotcha. And the reason for this was to simplify the implementation of stateless firewalls. <laughs> it makes sense, yeah. It's an interesting little factoid, and, and it like the implications of certain technological decisions bled into something like this was 1988, where stateless firewalls were, were first invented, and then we see some of that in the early on part of the internet, mm-hmm. and then we actually don't experience a problem with it until 20 years later is is, is what it ends up being because I think it was like about 2008 that 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 particular bug hit. Right. Um, yeah. I'm within a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, in 1981, DEC created an application layer firewall, which would was inspecting all the way down the protocol stack. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not just, hey, are you using the right port in the right protocol? Are you initiating it as opposed to, are you initiating a connection or expecting an existing connection? But also, is the activity you're doing on that port what we expect that port to do? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So this is looking for HTTP headers in HTTP requests. Right. And then in 1992, the DEX seal firewall was the first commercial firewall shipped. Hmm. And that's that and that was a stateful firewall. Right. So this is the stateful stateless kind of thing. But the thing was that a lot of folks didn't end up using this kind of filter because, well, in a lot of ways, they were expensive. <laughs> yeah. But there was a couple of other things you could do. First, we'll talk about a proxy firewall. A proxy firewall operates like a firewall in that it blocks traffic and deals with services. But what it does is the termination it terminates the connection on the firewall and then initiates a new one Mm. rather than it passing packets through and performing operations on them like blocking them or some or in some cases modifying them right i'm pretty sure there were a few different firewalls that operate this way and based on some of the things that i can see there's features that are like this in a lot of modern firewalls i found at least three or four vendors that did that but kind of the best example of that mode of operation was the Microsoft, the Forefront Threat Management Gateway, uh, later essentially renamed to the ISA Server 2000, which is basically just them trying to strap a bunch of firewall tech, firewall functionality on top of the Microsoft Proxy Server, which had already been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Not all services are really good at being proxied. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> and so... There are some limitations to just the proxy mechanism of it. I wasn't able to find a lot of commu- a confirmation for this because finding documentation for systems that existed in the 90s isn't the easiest thing to do. Yeah. Uh, so I, could, I couldn't confirm this, confirm this, but I'm pretty sure based on my recollection of doing work in this time period that Essentially, you you were looking for services that were that were that could uh, deal with a SOX proxy if they weren't straight HTTP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I do find interesting, actually, is that because we've seen a consolidation of protocols, where you have DNS and you have email and you have the web and, and SSL, right? 
this idea would have been had a lot more legs in an environment like what we have right now, where everything's consolidated to a very similar transport and it's all HTTP mm -hmm. um, or SSL TLS. Back in the day, you'd have all kinds of different protocols doing all kinds of different things. And it was not as good an idea. So we have the idea of the bastion host. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of ways of interpreting this, and I've gotten different explanations from different people. I read the original paper, and the original paper basically was a bastion host is a hardened host on the outside of your network perimeter mm -hmm. that's doing all the filtering and stuff. I have also seen it built and described as a bastion host, a server that is operating as a security boundary that is also providing services. Mm, okay. So you're DNS server runs on the same system that is acting as your firewall. Mm, okay. Maybe you have your email server and your DNS server on the same host that is allowing traffic and doing proxy or NAT stuff for all for all of your internal systems. Right. Now, this is kind of just a, a, a trivia question at this point. You wouldn't do this on any kind of enterprise level. And you're even kind of creating your own solution and some of your own problems if you do it on your own small network, whether it's your small business or, or a home network. Yeah, this kind of reminds me, I know one group uh, runs just a string of IP tables on like mm -hmm. the Linux, like mega host as their firewall uh, implementation yeah. for the entire network. Yeah, um, so actually that brings us to some of the local host firewall mechanisms that became mm -hmm. important in this time period. In 1990, so in the middle of all of this, of, the, of this lab development of, of these, you know, things that became products, you had a solution called TCP wrappers, which was an open source implementation for BSD and Linux type systems. And I'm pretty confident um, that I remember there it being ported to Solaris and Deck Unix and stuff like that. And it acts as a firewall, but really, for services local on the host. Okay. And what it would do is there, this is not very common in Unixes today, but it was pretty common back then that you'd have all of your major internet demons, whether it was Telnet, email, SMTP, FTP, HTTP, all of those kinds of uh, services would be handled, not kind of opening their own socket, but being hosted through a service called INETD. Mm -hmm. yeah. So INETD handled all the listeners and then passed the traffic through. Nowadays, right. if you're using that implement something like that, you will be using XINETD, which is kind of the successor, which is a little bit more capable of some yeah. stuff. But 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 the idea of hey, I've just got a thing that's handling pretty much all of my network services. The thing is that not everybody stuck to that. I remember back in the day that it was you could, but it was kind of a pain to get the OpenSSH daemon running serviced by INETD. It, it opened its own socket. Mm -hmm. But what TCP wrappers did was, you've got the socket controlled by INETD. TCP wrappers then said, okay, I have a set of rules about the traffic that I'm letting in. I wasn't able to find solid documentation to check myself on this, but the way it was described in a couple of places that I checked, because like I haven't messed with this in literally two decades, <laughs> right? possibly more. 
So um, it basically is supposed to allow a connection into a service, which mm-hmm. suggests to me that it's kind of, it's not fully stateless because it's looking for a connection initiation. It's looking for a SIN packet, mm-hmm. but it's not fully stateful because it's not keeping track of the entire connection. Yeah. Now there are capabilities in TCP wrappers, and I'm not sure what, if it started this way or, or 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 exactly how it goes. But it but it's able to manage thresholding of the number of connections that are attempted from a single IP, which you could do without being stateful. But again, this is very long time ago, so I'm not sure what at what point this capability came in place. But there's also was a the inability of like managing weight of traffic, how mm-hmm. much of your connection you're using, which was kind of a bigger deal back then because a T1 was a big pipe and that was one and a half megabit. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to really keep, wrap your head around how much bandwidth has changed over the last 25, 30 years. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like the same too, just with like memory on systems mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Like it used to be like you were scrimping to maybe get four gigs and now you're like at home just like running 32 and you're like, man. I just built a system with 64. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like an arms race. Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to build some elastic search stuff at my place. And I was like, you know, it's not actually that expensive <laughs> to make sure I never have to worry about RAM. Yeah, Google Chrome will eat up uh, 63 gigs of that. So honestly, it's kind of part of the reason I did it because I had <laughs> 16 in the box that it replaced and I couldn't run Chrome to like look up how to set up elastic search. Right. <laughs> At the same time, I was running Elasticsearch. Uh, good old, good old Chrome. We need a stripped down graphical web browser in in Linux that just kind of says, "Okay, if you want to chew up a lot of a lot of space, we're just not going to render it." But there was one cool thing. Well, maybe not cool, but there was one interesting thing in TCP wrappers in 1999. The guy that hosted it changed the hosting a little bit, and when he did somebody put up a Trojan version of it. Uh, and it was just noticed and fixed pretty quickly. But, mm-hmm. but it was a supply chain problem, mm-hmm. software supply chain problem back in 1999. I thought that was kind of interesting. That's funny, uh, yeah. So I'm going to talk a little bit about firewalls and architecture and kind of the development in a second. But I want to talk just a, a minute about some TCP Kung Fu that was a big deal when it happened in like 2002. You've used Nmap a fair, a fair, a fair bit, right? Yeah, yeah. You know what the dash SX switch does, right? Not off the top of my head. Okay. It's kind of an obscure one now, but this is the reason why it's important. The X stands for Xmas. It's for Christmas tree packets. Okay, yeah. Mm. Christmas tree packets are TCP packets with all of their flags set. And in 2002, there were several cases on several vendors firewalls where you could do things like set a sin fin packet or just a Christmas tree packet with everything. And the firewall would see a fin packet and let it through. Mm -hmm. And the service would see the sin packet and initiate the connection. Right. The response <laughs> packet would be a sin ack, which the firewall would see as a, a, as an ack packet, mm-hmm. or sorry, as a sin packet. I'm sorry, as a sin packet saying, "Oh, the server's initiating a connection." So mm-hmm. it was a way of bypassing the um, firewall. Um, right. 
wasn't too long after that all the major vendors and everybody thereafter started initiating checks of not just, you know, here's an order of things you do with flags set in this, but hey, how many flags do you have set? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you might think that state list firewalls are not in use anymore, but that's not totally true. At least the last time I talked to anybody about it, I actually got a chance to talk to Fidor, the guy who wrote Nmap, um, mm -hmm. when he did a presentation at DEF CON. I don't even remember how long ago it was, but he he regularly scans lots of the uh, chunks of the internet doing weird and crazy things. Mm -hmm. um, and he was like, here are things you do. He was talking about in the presentation, here are things you do for stateful and here's stuff you do with stateless. And I was like, do you really see any stateless firewalls? It's like, actually, yeah. Um, really? Basically, anybody who's trying to put together a really low uh, overhead firewall type functionality on some kind of embedded device might mm. turn to a stateless firewall because a stateless firewall doesn't need to create a state table. Right, yeah. And if you think about it functionally, you have a whole list of rules. You have to process 50% of that on average every time you get a packet. Sometimes it's going to be the first rule. Sometimes it's going to be the last rule. But on average, 50%. Swag, all firewall rules ever. Right. But if you've got a state table, you have to go, all right, is this a state in my table first? And then check the rule set if it's not. Mm -hmm. Now, implementing state firewall means you have to have RAM, and you're also spending potentially more processing power per connection. Right, yeah, yeah. This actually gets less crazy when you start thinking, hey, why do am I using a straight processor for that? And why am I looking at some of these things like their lists? Mm -hmm. And this is like deep firewall food that you don't need to totally understand. But most modern firewalls, the PIX, has been, the PIX ASA has been, and the ISG and basically everybody else has been doing this kind of thing for years. I remember when... It was much more fiddly in the PIX ASA firewalls right around 2004, 5, something like that. Right. Um, where it'll use an FPGA array to do some of the matching for you. Okay. So when you save your rule set, it's actually reprogramming the FPGA array in order hmm. to... Interesting. Yeah, in order to do all of that processing on the FPGA array and... Now you're not burdening the 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 CPU of the firewall mm -hmm. with traffic, so it doesn't choke and die CPU wise <laughs> when you're trying to manage it, and there's too much traffic going through. Yeah, but it's yeah. also a lot faster. And there were a couple of ways of implementing it. Now it kind of figures out the best way to do it for you, and that's true for basically everybody that uses that uses these things. And there were a couple of different approaches to to using it, but the most important thing was being able to offload. A significant amount of that processing to what is in essence an embedded system mm -hmm, right um another thing is if you've done a lot of reading about snort or you've done some computer science stuff you might be familiar with the idea of a b tree no okay so what a b tree is is a binary tree a bunch okay. of yes no decision making going down into the depths if you mm -hmm. were trying to make the decision around binary choices Mm -hmm. If you were trying to determine between a thousand different choices and you could check 
you know, yes, no questions all the way down, you, it wouldn't be more than 10 questions to get all the way down. Right. Okay. Because two to the 10th yeah. is, is yeah. 1024. Um, so it significantly reduces the number of decisions that the that the system needs needs to make. Mm -hmm. And when you have states, there are a lot of pieces of that state that you can turn into a binary map very quickly. Mm -hmm. like you can just okay. take the IP address of the source address and you you turn that into a binary number and you map a that map that to a binary tree. Right. More than 32 decisions in the worst case. Hmm. Okay. Right. So, I mean this is just this is very top level how that how you can do some of those things to accelerate how how they work. It's like it choose your own adventure books. I mean, like you know, they're <laughs> usually like hundreds of pages long, but you know, you blast through them. Right, because you're actually only reading like 15 pages. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this is kind of the point where the core firewall functions that we're talking about can be done by multiple devices. Mm -hmm. You have in the case of routers. Routers, back in the day, most easily blocked things by IPs. Making it block things by port was added a little bit later. That's actually not so bad because, but that's a that was a stateless filter. Mm -hmm. Like straight router ACLs are stateless filter. But many routers nowadays, even if they're not multifunction routers, have the ability to, like in the Cisco's case, you can put the ACL established command line is part of the ACL, and that actually makes it a stateful ACL. Mm, okay. But going back to what I was saying about kind of the acceleration hardware specifically built into firewalls, unless you have the router analog to that as part of like your, your, your management module or you bought the add-on card for it, mm -hmm. which do exist, um, but like this is totally real stuff, but unless you're doing that, you're processing those kinds of controls a lot less efficiently on your router than you are your firewall. Mm -hmm. So I mean, if that's the device you have in place and you have the overhead, maybe that's the right decision. Like we have three management ports on the other side of this router. We want to make sure that they only come from certain places. Let's just put that on that router and not try and employ a new firewall. Right. Good decision. But if you have, and I've seen this before, uh, kind of contention between the firewall team and the network team, <laughs> you can offload a lot of unfortunate stuff over to the router, which isn't as good at some of these things. Mm -hmm. But there are things that the routers just aren't very good at at all. And that brings us to the some of the ideas of doing things in the application layer. Right. Now, there are some protocols that are very tricky. Passive mode FTP is actually one of them, which mm. has been around for a really long time. And you can make a connection, and there will be another connection that comes back from the server on a different port. It's port 20 and port 21 mm -hmm. that are used for that. Um, and in that case, the firewall has to be smart enough to say, somebody initiated a passive mode connection and allows the other connection. Right, yeah, yeah. That isn't always the biggest deal because a lot of FTP servers will kind of transparently uh, let you go between active and passive mode. And besides who uses FTP anymore? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you'd be surprised. That's not totally true, but it's it it's become less and less important. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing that kind of reared its ugly head most often for me in my career, because this happened in 
many places was Oracle has a um, has a protocol called SQLNet. I think that they've gone to something else since then because it's been a little bit since I've I've had to to deal with this problem, hmm. or it's just well really well dealt with on the application layer on uh, on the layer seven firewalls that I'm used to using. But what it'll do is you'll make a connection, a command connection saying, I want to run this SQL. And then it will take a connection back to the system on a high port that will actually deliver the data. And that's okay. the only way it works. And that is both frustrating to deal with when the, when the firewall doesn't handle it for you because like, it's just this random high port connection, but also depending on how big the query you're running is it needs to be a very long duration connection mm -hmm. so you have to so you have to do some very some very fiddly things uh establishing okay if it's from this server it can go on a high port basically anywhere inside our network and don't time out the tcp connections unless they go longer <laughs> than two hours um and like those things are not firewalls back when that was kind of an important thing the syntax to do that, the the way that you configure those things, was deep in the documentation. Uh -huh. And I did also run into one time when the documentation didn't exist yet. When we transitioned from Cisco PIX six to ASA seven, there were a lot. They they increased the sophistication on how all of that worked, but we were a very early adopter, and we kind of started using it before they had finished documenting all of the. <laughs> switches on it so me and two other folks on the team fought with it for like a couple of weeks before we figured it out <laughs> i mean that wasn't the only problem we were trying to solve with it but we but like to robustly understand what all the things that we wanted to use it for um mm -hmm. had to, we had to kind of play guess and check and just, yeah. analyze a lot of uh, packet data um so the, I, i'm gonna mention the the the, the pick specifically um, because it was started by a company uh, called called Network Translation um, okay. in uh, 2005. Sorry, 1995. So in the Data Communications Magazine, it was a hot project pro product of the year in January 1995. In November 1995, Cisco had bought them. <laughs> so the thing about them, and kind of one of the big reasons I I, I mentioned them along with the fact that they had a, a pretty substantial market share in the early internet. They had this idea of not creating ACLs of these are the kind of connections, but mm. the idea that that connection and the network address translation associated with it was one configuration. Mm. They called this a conduit. Now, this isn't the way that they do it anymore, but they had started with a, a, a different idea on how to map these connections that, that that you were mapping the connection and any kind of address translation into the same rule. That's not really how anybody does it anymore. For all the variations in the kinds of rule sets that we make and like the different approaches to rule sets, everybody has, here's the traffic I want to allow and block. And then they have a list of, here's how I want to translate addresses. Network address translation can go a couple of different ways. There's this whole idea of the one-to-one -one translation, which is your IP, you have an internal IP and you have an external IP and you map that as a virtual IP and basically everything else stays the same. Right. And then you have, hey, I've got a pool of 
addresses that I'm that I'm natting for on the inside side. And it's going out a small number, a much smaller number of IPs uh, down to one in some cases on the outgoing side. Mm -hmm. And to keep track of those things, I have to keep track of the states and I have assigned each connection a different source port. Yes. Mm -hmm. This is sometimes called port address translation. Yep. Um, there's a lot of variations in exactly how this stuff works. In my opinion, at this point, it's not super important to keep them all straight because most of the default configurations for, for firewalls is to randomize the source port on the outgoing on outgoing traffic mm. uh, on its way out. Um, so the source port on the inside of the network and the source port on the outside of the network aren't the same. Yeah, like I, I do remember studying for this when I was taking mm. my like network plus, I think it was or something. Mm -hmm. And this is it, it's very confusing. Like when you're just looking at a book describing all of this, mm -hmm. and then when you actually sit down with a firewall and like configure it um, and set it up, then you're like, oh, okay, this isn't this isn't that confusing. Like once I have my hands on it. And a lot of this stuff is is not very confusing once you can look at like the whole of the, of the problem. Mm -hmm. The thing is that it's it's not very forgiving. Like it's not yes. super confusing, but when it doesn't work, it really doesn't work. It it usually doesn't kind of work. Yeah, and that is just kind of a bane of existence as well for a lot of applications nowadays. In just my recent testing, um, and things like in the past, uh, Active Directory doesn't work over NAT. That's just a no go. Um, Horizon View needs a universal access gateway if you're going to do a NAT because otherwise it can't pass the VDI session uh, back and forth because it gets confused. Uh, Leo Stream Connection Broker, same thing. It needs its own gateway. Like a lot of things nowadays have to have an extra component that is your NATed device that then talks to the inside stuff. Like you can't just do a one to one internally um, and get this shit working. So, a couple of points there. Um, I mean, what you're talking about in the gateway. And I, I actually skipped a part of my script where I was where I want to talk a little bit about the actual important things that we need to remember about the ideas of a proxy. Mm -hmm. You have your outgoing proxy, and that can act as a web filter. And it's sometimes the simpler way of dealing with with um, with filtering HTTP traffic. But more importantly, um, from a we're providing services point of view, is the idea of a reverse proxy. Yep. It's mm -hmm. It's a proxy. It's just that in, you're proxying the whole internet down to a, a a particular host rather than a bunch of hosts out to the whole internet. Mm -hmm. Right. And, yeah. But it's still the same proxy functionality. What those gateways are essentially doing is acting as proxies for a specific protocol. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I get that you understand that. I'm just I'm trying to articulate for yeah. potential listeners. Yeah, um, and it, it's a weird thing too because like we have proxies um for certain things but like making tunnels and proxies yourself as opposed to the vendor making it specifically for the application uh works a hell of a lot better than that. well yeah because if you look into their protocols the header protocols usually help uh usually deal with all of the confusion that might stem from an act mm -hmm. yeah they're dealing with 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 hammering out all of the weirdness in the application layer yeah 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 exactly uh, the other thing that I was going to mention is IPv6 purists believe no that there should be no NAT in IPv6. Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah, I've heard that. Now, some of the stuff you're talking about is exactly the reason for it. Mm -hmm. But 
it ends up being a lot more muddy than the purists want to think it is. Um, right. First of all, some of the reasons for NATS is some of it's for address preservation. You can have most people's home networks work. You're using reserve private address space 192.168.0.0 uh, slash 16, whichever, whatever chunk of that you want. Mm -hmm. um, at one single real um, network routable IP address at your router. Um, so that's address preservation. You can have dozens of devices on the inside and only one real internet address. Right, yeah. But it's also about disclosing the inside of your network. Mm -hmm. It's surprisingly common in some of the early adopters of the internet, some of the big companies, some of the, the government departments, that kind of thing, that have a pretty large chunk of address space, but only use it internally. And then they'll even net that out, even though even though they're using real internet routable IPs. Right. Yeah. And that's so that they're not disclosing their their internal network, even though they have sufficient IP space to not have to do any translation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then there's some really crazy stuff that I didn't know it was going to come up, so I didn't uh, review. But in IPv6 world, there's also this whole idea of mobile addresses um if your phone has a ipv6 address assigned from your provider and you're mm -hmm. on a different provider's network there's this whole like crazy set of protocols for tunneling and pro and and that kind of connection um not exactly proxying because it's all happening in the network header but right yeah but essentially they're resolving the problem of nat <laughs> of, a, of a nat like thing with another set of complexity right yeah so as much as we might want to kind of get away from some of the ideas of that turns out we've built an internet that expects a certain amount of it mm -hmm. yeah yeah exactly the idealism doesn't survive the use case <laughs> at this point we get towards the end of the progression of firewalls which is ne next gen firewalls um in 2009 gartner really put the term on the map. There were already firewalls that were doing some of these things, but they really put it on the map at that point. So a next generation firewall, first of all, it's going to be do that kind of application layer all the way down the stack kind of awareness. Hmm. They have built into the same apparatus an IPS type functionality they are able to bring in intelligence outside of the firewall, indicators of compromise, bad IP lists, dynamically generated stuff where maybe your sock says, I want to block this domain. I know nobody else wants to block it, but I do. Right. And being able to post that to something so that the firewall automatically in its application layer security can automatically pick up that on your block list without having to configure the firewall to do it. Mm-hmm. This is actually an important piece of being able to dynamically affect security controls, which without that, this was building block before we called things SOAR, but without this, some of the things that SOAR is expected to do would be much more difficult. Right. It needs to have all the standard first-generation firewall capabilities. And I don't and totally agree with, with parts of what they say here as standard first-generation capabilities. Packet filtering, state tracking, flexible NAT policies, those are all there. 
But while it was pretty common in enterprise level firewalls to be able to do IPsec or even SSL VPNs, uh, SSL TLS type VPNs, um, or SSH VPNs even, um, TFSense I know did that for, uh, had that feature for a bit. Um, I personally, and I'm disagreeing with Gartner here, so you know nobody's going to listen to me. But uh, <laughs> I think that those are extra pieces of functionality that are part of that whole like next gen package. They were probably the first things that were added to the next gen package, mm-hmm. but they aren't the core functionality of what a firewall is. Mm. And I'm not the kind of purist to be like, if it's not a pure firewall, I won't touch it. I'm not that kind of guy. It's just right. this is what a firewall does, and we see that kind of functionality existing in other things. Mm. It's also supposed to support bump in the wire deployments, which is operating as the like the full stack blocking policy, but not actually having any IP interfaces themselves. Mm, okay. This is so you have one VLAN on one side and one VLAN on the other side, no mm. IP addresses, but all the traffic gets goes through because you're replicating the ARP table saying um, on your inside interface, you're saying, hey, I am the layer two hop to your next hop in mm. layer three and vice versa. And so packet comes from the first router and says, I want to go out. Where do I go out? I go out my default gateway my, and that gateway is... And the, and the firewall is hosting that. And then it passes, it does its thing, blocks it or passes it, whatever it wants to do. And then it passes it to a different VLAN with a different ARP table and sending it on to the outside router. Mm, okay, that's cool. So firewalls and IPS systems ha- are known to be implemented in this kind of bump in the wire configuration. Mm-hmm. Where, where like from a network stack point of view, you don't see it, but it's there in the layer two. Right. So the things it's not is it's not doing this kind of bastion host type stuff where it's not hosting application specific security services, not necessarily reverse proxy, but not not an email gateway or DLP or stuff like that. We have seen some of that functionality be integrated into next generation firewalls. Mm -hmm. But what it means is that you can combine a lot of the a lot of this functionality in one place. And as a boundary system, that means I'm going to talk about Palo Altos because they, they've taken a lot of market space because of this. And I'll say that at that time, I feel like they were probably more capable in some of these areas, but the Cisco ASA, I think this might've been around the beginning of the firepower solution, did a lot of these things. Right. My personal opinion, and I started as a Cisco guy and became more of a Palo Alto guy and I've worked with checkpoints and, and, and Juniper ISGs and, and, um, well, those two mostly uh, along the way. So I've touched more than a few kinds of firewalls. Mm-hmm. But I think I think the Palo Alto handling of it under the hood is more integrated, slicker. Uh, yeah. I haven't touched a firepower in a long time, so I can't say for sure. But the things that I have seen suggests that they have not significantly moved from the original PIX ASA code base, which fundamentally means that they're doing things in a more in a less integrated way um and i'm i'm trying to keep this as a high level instead of like talking about uh-huh. some of the ways that this stuff works so i guess i wanted to close out with a couple of you know what 
I was going to try and cram this all into one episode, but I think mm. that I'm going to, I'm, I'm actually going to uh, do a new, uh, another episode on uh, firewall management technique and uh, architecture. Because um, yeah. this is run, a, this part has run a little bit longer than I expected. Um, yeah. that would be a good episode though. I didn't want to do talk about fireballs without giving myself a chance on the soapbox to talk <laughs> about stuff. So yeah, you're not yeah, getting yeah. away from it. I'm glad you're going to want to hear it. <laughs> Find out about new episodes at r slash hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.